Welcome to the Mind Medicine Australia podcast, where we explore breakthrough innovations for mental illness. I'm Tommy Moore, host of this podcast, Mind Medicine Australia, which is a charity that is committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness through expanding the treatment options available to medical practitioners and their patients. We are supporting the development of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy programs within Australia by providing educational material at events, therapist training, ethical and legal guidelines, as well as supporting clinical research. In furtherance of this mission, the Mind Medicine Australia podcast aims to facilitate engagement between clinicians, researchers, mental health practitioners, and other leaders in psychedelic-assisted therapy to provide expert opinion, share research results, and ultimately help to educate the public about potential new opportunities in patient treatment. If you wish to support our mission, there are a number of ways that you can do this. You can join local chapter groups and be amongst the discussion, uh, keep up to date with relevant information, and also help to share this information within your community. You can share this podcast, leave a five-star review, and provide any comments or questions for the podcast. That really helps. These are all, of course, zero-cost ways and simple ways that you can support the development of psychedelic-assisted therapies within Australia and also around the world. If you wish to be a financial assistance, you can donate directly to mindmedicineaustralia.org. I've been asked by quite a few people now how they can support me and the podcast financially. So in response to that, I now have a Patreon account where you can support me in creating this content by donating a few dollars per month could be $5 or $10, whatever feels right for you. So you can check out the show notes for all of the links for all of those things. And once again, thank you for your support and interest in this emerging space. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Lynn Marie Morsky. Lynn Marie Morsky, MD, JD, is the president of the Psychedelic Medicine Association host of the Plant Medicine Podcast, founder of plantmedicine.org, and the medical director for wayofleaf.com. She is a Mayo Clinic-trained physician in family medicine and sport medicine, as well as an attorney and former adjunct law professor. Dr. Morsky worked at the Veterans Administration for nine years, and after leaving clinical medicine, she made it her mission to help fill the gap in the medical community's knowledge of psychedelics by educating her fellow physicians on the plant medicines and entheogens that could bring life-changing relief to their patients. She started the Plant Medicine Podcast to bring scientific researchers, practitioners, and those who have been personally affected by the healing powers of these plants together to also help educate the public on what is possible and help further research and decriminalization of these substances she later founded the Psychedelic Medicine Association, which is a society of physicians, therapists, and healthcare professionals looking to advance their education on the therapeutic uses of psychedelic medicines. So the Psychedelic Medicine Association is a public benefit corporation of healthcare providers aimed at bridging the gap between the advances taking place in the psychedelic research space and medical practitioners. In this episode, we really cover the fundamentals of psychedelic therapy. So factors that influence which psychedelic medicine is best suited for the patient. It's more of a discussion about that. Um, we chat about Lynn Marie's therapeutic realization 
when she took a psychedelic medicine. We chat about common myths or confusions within the space, current accessibility, Western and Indigenous perspectives of illness and wellness, some of the big hurdles preventing doctors being able to prescribe psychedelics, how we should approach the stigma within the healthcare and clinical or medical community, as well as harm reduction. I will say that before we get into this episode, the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease and should consult with a doctor or other healthcare professional for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment. Lynn Marie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Tommy. That's amazing. I'm really looking forward to this one. I think there's there's so much that that can be spoken about here because the psychedelic and plant medicine space is growing so quickly and rapidly and awareness is building, which is fantastic. But as a field of of medicine and research, I think we need to be stringent in in our approach in introducing and, and integrating this into Western medicine and culture. And you're doing an incredible job at, at developing an ecosystem where medical students, uh, healthcare professionals and patients can all come together and, and bring forward a, a cohesive approach to this field. So perhaps the best place to start is telling us a little bit about what you do. So talk us through what the Plant Medicine Association is all about, your, your background and the wonderful podcast that you've created. Will do, will do. Uh, thanks. It's actually called the Psychedelic Medicine Association. And I have the Plant Medicine Podcast, which is why it's confusing. I should, you know, back in the day, I should have just sat down and combined and known the future and said, okay, everything's going to be psychedelic medicine. But the term plant medicine was kind of popular back in the day. Anyway, Psychedelic Medicine Association is a, a group. It's a little bit of a misnomer because it's not actually an association for clinicians who are doing psychedelic medicine, which sometimes people think it is, but it's an organization aimed at educating frontline clinicians on the currently available and soon to be available psychedelic therapies and how they may be worked into their current practices. So we've got mental health therapists, primary care doctors, um, psychiatrists, psychologists, anybody who's on the front lines of patient care, anybody to whom a patient may go and say, I'm feeling sad, I'm having symptoms of PTSD, I've got depression, I may have a traumatic brain injury. I want everybody that that patient goes to to be well aware of these therapeutics so that when the patient says, what are my options? They no longer say, oh, antidepressants and therapy are your only options. I want them to provide the full range of options so that the patient and the doctor can, or the clinician can make that decision together based on a full range of information. Amazing, amazing. And so I guess when it comes to, to leveraging psychedelic and plant medicines for, for positive transformation and healing, there are a number of things that, that need to be considered. Um, there, are, there are so many powerful tools and useful plant medicines and, and non-plant medicines, of course, like MDMA, ketamine, and LSD, and many of them are used in, in similar contexts and follow similar protocols. So what is the approach in selecting the right medicine for the patient? 
it's something that we need to be thinking about making a specialty because med like, for example, I'm a physician. I did a family medicine residency and then I did a sports medicine fellowship. And so my specialty is family medicine. My subspecialty is sports medicine. I think there's a need for there to be a subspecialty in psychedelic medicine because that first question is the key question. Like once we have more than one thing that's legal and available to us, how do we know which one is best for that patient for the specific thing that they want to be addressing based on uh, their family history and their medical history as well? Can they do that medicine? And then for the ones that may be a little bit more, let's say, intense for the patient, you know, if ketamine is 45 minutes and it's in a clinic, that's, you may be mentally intense, but physically probably something they could do at a clinic down the street and be home in the same day. But going to an ayahuasca center and doing a, you know, six hour ayahuasca journey, planning a diet ahead of time, like there's a lot more that's involved in there. So it, you know, there's so many factors that go into deciding that proper medicine. And it's going to be interesting to, to see who's the one who starts making those decisions. And I would love for there to eventually be people who are specialized in both that conversation picking out the medicine. For example, if a patient goes to their psychiatrist, psychologist, their mental health professional and says, you know, I've got these issues. And the mental health professional says, we can do counseling. We can put you on an anti, anti you know, depressant or anti-anxiety, but your third option is psychedelics. I would love for them to be able to refer to the psychedelic medicine specialist. They have a consultation. The medicine is chosen, you know, with a conversation between the two of them and with the clinician looking at their, like I said, their background, their medical history, talking with them about what their kind of risk tolerance is and are you adverse to travel or that kind of thing. And if they've had perhaps past experience with psychedelics, that should definitely be weighed in. In the future, we're going to have data on if somebody with this type of DNA, I mean, we've seen, I think, one study so far that if there's a certain allele in their DNA, then they process MDMA or LSD in this different way. That's going to be really inf inf um, beneficial information to know to make that decision as well. So there's a lot of things that go into making that decision. And um, I am very hopeful that someday there's an entire specialty that focuses on that. And, that's, and that specialist as well could also do the clearance because that's kind of a second step is like, okay, we think this is the best for you. Let's say they pick out Ibogaine, but Ibogaine, you have to have a, a medical clearance saying that you don't have a certain type of cardiac arrhythmia. And so how great if there's a specialty where they can go to that person selects the medicine and then also is able to help do the clearance so that they um, know that they are medically safe to go do that intervention. Right, right. Now, so you were saying you, you're a family doctor. In my training, I was a family medicine doctor, and then I did a sports medicine fellowship, and then I kind of ignored the sports medicine part and went to work for the Veterans Administration for nine years. So that the bulk of my years after fellowship were at the VA, which is obviously a place that many people go that could benefit from these psychedelics. And that's why I left the VA in 2019 and made it my mission to focus on getting this information to clinicians so that they could help them as many patients as possible. Yeah, amazing. And so what was that first spark of interest when it when it came to, I guess, diverting your your professional career and, and or your energy into this space? Well, I finally, like I said, left in 2019, but my first, and, and I'm very late bloomer as far as exposure to substances goes, but I had my first psychedelic experience in 2013 at the age of 35. So I, it was not something I had done as a kid or in college or anything like that. Um, first experience was at Burning Man. I'll just put that out there <laughs> is where I'm sure many people have had experiences. But um, it was during that experience that I, I had like a, a realization, like a therapeutic realization. Like it showed me a story I was telling me of telling myself about myself. And then since then, I've been able to, okay, let's overcome that story. And 
at that point it was just kind of like a curiosity like oh interesting I did LSD and it showed me this thing about myself and that was just like okay put that information away and then I would do very sporadic recreational journeys over the next few years and it was 2017 that I found out psychedelic science was actually a thing that I had completely you know it's not on doctor's radars it's just not which is why I'm so passionate about sharing it because we're not taught about it in medical school or residency or fellowship anywhere so I finally heard about it on probably I think the Tim Ferriss podcast and I heard about maps and I was like, oh my goodness. So I, you know, I dove right in. And then 2018, I had an ayahuasca journey and that was as powerful as they say, right? The 20 years of therapy in one night. So there I am, I'm doing these psychedelics. I know about the science and I'm going to work during the day, not being able to tell them about it because if I even admit to doing a drug, I would get fired. So that's kind of the, the trajectory is it was like a six year path between when I, it, my, I was first exposed to them. And I finally decided like, it's so out of alignment for me to be not sharing what I know that I had to leave. Yeah, and, and that, I guess that the recreational um, setting, you know, people often just label a, a psychedelic experience. It's just, you know, like a, a crazy drug experience that they just kind of put to the side and don't really put all that much attention into. And so I can see how, how these kind of things can kind of, kind of slip away. But when we're speaking about psychedelics in a, I guess a psychotherapeutic setting, it is such a vastly different experience and approach. So maybe a good way to, to start is by kind of talking about, I guess, some of some of the basics of, of psychedelics. Um, for, for for those that perhaps haven't tuned into to your or, or this podcast previously, let's just talk about some of the, the fundamentals of psychedelic therapy. Um, so from preparation and intention and and integration and how the patient and therapists can ensure that uh, the insights or discoveries from the experience are long lasting. So, so what are some ways that the patient can help cement some of this learning? Sure. So as you spoke about, preparation is a good start that sets you up for a journey that will hopefully be more beneficial to you in the long term. It's, it may be setting an intention. Okay, what kind of things do I want to work on when I go into the journey? And also there's parts of, of preparing your psyche for that, getting everything kind of calmed down. Like you don't necessarily want to go into a psychedelic journey in the peak stressful time of your week or your month uh, because set and setting is, is so crucial. And that set refers to the mindset. So if you can go in with the most calm mindset as possible, granted, we're using these for mental health indications. So if you've got chronic PTSD, that mindset may never be that calm. But if we can minimize the distractions on top of whatever kind of the chronic problem is, then great, that's the best option. So you've got that preparation, you're setting an intention, you're getting yourself kind of mentally and physically prepared, get sleep, make sure that your diet is on point, you know, minimize alcohol, caffeine, those kinds of things that could interact. Then you go into the journey, most of these are done. And most, let's say, have a better outcome if there is a psychotherapeutic context, even ketamine. Um, something like ketamine-assisted therapy, but definitely if you're doing you know, ayahuasca, there's a, uh, a guide there. Psilocybin, same thing. MDMA, you've got the therapists and the facilitators. So if you can have a facilitated journey that includes psychotherapy, and often there's also psychotherapy before and after. Maybe we call it psychotherapy. Maybe we call it preparation integration, but there is a type of psychotherapeutic component throughout. You go into the journey, then afterward, like you said, how do we cement this? That process is called integration. And integration takes care of a few things. One, it helps you make sense of the lessons that you've learned during the journey, if you learned a lesson. Um, like I said, with my first uh, psychedelic journey on LSD at Burning Man, it showed me that I judge myself more harshly than other people judge, my, than judge me. 
And I was lucky enough to just get that in kind of like the few things it showed me and it just all smacked together. But very often I hear people that come out of a ayahuasca experience like, well, I saw this blue owl and then this snake came over and like, how do you make sense of what any of those things meant? Or maybe you saw like a devil and it showed you this thing about your path. I mean, there's some interesting imagery that may be hard to decipher. So integration is the process of perhaps figuring out maybe what some of the things mean. Or like I said, if you got a, a very clear message, then talking about ways that you can integrate that into your life and remind yourself of that message. Because if I never think about that message again, it's not gonna help me. It's not gonna help have a positive outlook on my mood and my mental state. So those are big parts of integration. And then the other thing is just that when you go from, say you're doing you know, a four day ayahuasca retreat or something, and then you come out of it, how do you go back to your cubicle or pre-COVID cubicle or now your, your Zoom calls or whatever, like that's a kind of jarring transition. And so integration is the process where we take it easy on ourselves and we do a lot of, you know, kind of inward work, maybe some meditation, breath work, journaling, soul searching, lots of self-care, and then ease back in, hopefully employing the new lessons that we've learned. Yeah, amazing. And I guess the intention behind using the, the certain substance and, and depending on what that substance is can often line up with the integration. And so you, you're having a certain intention. And so when you're integrating the experience, it's often lining up or what the intention was and, and how that could have affected through that experience. So when it comes to, to setting an intention for using the medicine in a, in a ceremony or, or a controlled therapy session, what is the patient asked to do in terms of what they're hoping to achieve? I know with some practices, the, the patient or subject doesn't necessarily need a specific goal, but it, but is asked to remain open and, and allow the medicine to do its work naturally. So how flexible or rigid should the intention be prior to an experience? Uh, I will just start this with a caveat that I am not a psychedelic therapist. I do not guide ceremonies. I'm like, I'm sure there are people who've been on your podcast way better to answer that question than me, but I will try, I will try to offer what I can from my own really literally personal experience at this point, because, uh, you know, there have been times I've gone in with a certain, um, let's say a certain intention in mind that was like, okay, let's see if I can uncover this trauma. Was this, is this fear I have from a trauma in my childhood? That was the kind of thing going in. Uh, is that what I was shown? No. <laughs> and then other times I'll go in and the the uh, intention will just be like freedom or just like a mantra or a word or something. But at the end of the day, I've had some journeys where the the mantra or the intention completely guides the journey. And somewhere, it doesn't matter what I wanted, it was going to show me what it wanted to show me. And they may be tangentially related, they may not be. And so I, I think it's it's maybe best of both worlds if you have Per, I, and again, like with the psychotherapeutic context, very often they're going in for the thing. Are they doing MDMA for PTSD, right? They're going in with the thought of this will help whatever is help hopefully address the trauma at the core of the PTSD. That's probably naturally the intention. But who's to say that, you know, you go to your therapist and then that's obviously your natural intention. But you, you know, if you still say open, say I'm open to learning whatever lessons the medicine wants to show me, I would like to uncover the trauma. But if it has, you know, who knows, maybe that's not the trauma that's causing it. It shows you this other thing. So I think it's a combination of, of having that intention, but also leaving things open, like you said. Yeah, certainly. And so with all the work that you're doing and, and bringing scientific researchers and, and practitioners and patients and, and getting those stories together, 
What are you finding that is often confused about psychedelic medicine? So we don't have patients in the Psychedelic Medicine Association. We have clinicians only and then organizations. So uh, if I have anything from patients, it's just things that, that people come to me and share through maybe they listen to the podcast or, or that kind of thing. So um, patients generally come to me after they've had a great experience. So it's really hard for me to guess as to what is stopping them. But when I do, I do talk to some people that are brand new to the field. They often have a lot of the same questions that the practitioners do, which is, um, are these addictive? because they just hear drugs and we know that there are a lot of drugs that are addictive. And so once that's all lumped together, they say, are these addictive? Are these harmful? You know, again, lots of drugs can be harmful when misused. And so they have that same thought like, oh, is this gonna do more harm? And then there's that old, you know, bad trip fear, which people have heard about, oh man, am I gonna have flashbacks for the rest of my life? Or, you know, different side effects that you hear about, or, oh, I'm gonna go in and my brain's gonna melt. Like they have these kind of extreme thoughts about the worst case scenarios with trips. And yeah, uh, challenging trips happen. And I'm not definitely not gonna say, oh, that's not a concern. But the first two, at least I'm able to give them more data on what the actual safety profile is, whether or not the, the substance is actually addictive, most of them are being anti-addictive, which means that they're helpful in breaking other addictions. But I'd say that overall, that's kind of the, the realm that most people are initially concerned about. This challenging trip is, can be incredibly helpful because it's, I guess, the word psychedelic, psyche being the mind or the soul, and delic coming from the, the Greek or Latin word delos, to make clear or visible. And so when people are coming in with mental difficulty, what they'll find is that the whole, I guess, landscape of mental patterns and, and thoughts become visible to them. And this can be challenging. And so part of that therapy is to be able to work through those challenging experiences to wind the clock back and help to, to understand them. Now, I asked about the patients because I know that with your, your podcast, you go through the medical profession and you also have the, the patient experience. So I thought there might be, might be some things from there. I, not necessarily on a personal basis. So, so that's how I was asking there. So in terms of the accessibility of these medicines, some are a, a lot more further ahead than others. Things like, like ketamine is being more widely used now. What is the current scope of, of the legality and how close is uh, the state that you're in and, and the rest of, of the states and, and even the rest of the world to being able to, to use these medicines more freely? Absolutely. So uh, ketamine is legal in the U.S. And most of these I can basically only speak for the legality in, in the U.S. But uh, ketamine is a Schedule Three substance, so able to be used with a prescription. And we are lucky enough that in November they passed Measure 109 in Oregon. And so that Oregon now is on its way to having a legal medi like a medicinal, like a medical model, that's what they call it, a medical model for psilocybin use. And so it is yet to be seen exactly what that's going to look like. That's going to be launching in 2023. They have two years to get it up and running, but at least there is going to be a way that you can consume psilocybin legally in the state of Oregon, which is amazing. Uh, a number of cities have decriminalized mostly uh, natural entheogens. I'd say six or seven at this point, including our capital, Washington, DC. And so that's a great first step. There is a bill to have statewide legal um, decriminalization going through the California assembly currently. So that's the state I am in. And so it's getting close. And I know that they are thinking in California and I believe Washington about trying to do what Oregon is trying to do in the near future. And so that's right now we've got a lot more on the decrim side than we do as for actual legalization, but Oregon really kicked things off and showed us that 
you know, there are things possible that perhaps are a little bit outside of anything that anybody has ever thought. And so I think that got the wheels turning. And so hopefully we are pretty close. As far as FDA, I think, you know, Rick Doblin and MAPS have said 2024, I believe, is when they believe there will be FDA approval for MDMA. Psilocybin is now just entering phase three trials. So I imagine it will be a few years behind that. Um, so I think that's a general overview. As far as the other ones, um, you know, ayahuasca, ibogaine, um, as far as legalization, un very unsure on the timeline there, but uh, they are decriminalized through the, the certain cities that have decriminalized natural entheogens. Yeah, wonderful. You mentioned ayahuasca and, and ayahuasca being part of a, a very ancient ceremony and culture through through South America and of course there's there's been so many ancient traditions and cultures that have used these types of medicines to I guess as, as almost like a rite of passage or, or spiritual healing type of experiences so once again I'm not sure the questions I'm asking you are directly to you but more of more of a as a discussion but there are many ancient ceremonies and practices that involve these and some involve dancing and movement where some involve darkness and silence. So what do you think is a, a good approach or just to, to open the discussion about preserving indigenous wisdom and its integration to modern medicine? Well, I think the, the topic of the kind of the differences is really interesting because many Western practitioners have no familiarity with it, how indigenous traditions view illness and wellness. Uh, so I had somebody named Adam Aronovich on my podcast, and he did an episode on like the difference between you know Western medical traditions and indigenous traditions. And he was talking about the pathology. Let's see, what's he call it? Pathologic pathologizing. That's it. That which is essentially like if you're sad, we in the West have to give you like a code. Here's your DSM code that is what we use to like bill the patients. And all of a sudden, you've got like uh, a label, and a num your label has a number. And there's, we're so into this this labeling thing. Whereas there are so many things that in the indigenous culture, they're like, you know, do you have a heaviness? Is it because you haven't been with community or share? By the way, I could be butchering all this because I, you know, I'm not the firsthand anthropologist like he is, but it was really eye-opening to see the, the, the vast difference in how they view illness versus wellness. And their way opens up a lot more avenues because for us, it's like, do you have, do you qualify for this condition, right? Like for PTSD, there's a scale, the cap scale. If you get a certain number on the cap scale, then you have it. If you don't, then you don't, right? And then, oh, but then if you don't have PTSD, we don't need to treat, et cetera. But you still might be a little sad or you still might have a little bit of anxiety or a little whatever it is. And I think that the West, the uh, indigenous traditions seem to leave a little bit more space for just, are you just kind of feeling alone and disconnected from your community? Do you just lack joy? Have you, have you not been dancing and singing? You know, like little things like that. And well, not even little, you know, but differences like that, that I think the Western cultures would be would benefit from knowing because it should not in our Western medical tradition be all about treating illness. It should be about promoting wellness in all of its forms. And so I am hoping that as this Renaissance continues, more Western doctors are exposed to those indigenous traditions and learn from them. Yeah, no, 100%. You hit the nail on the head there. In Western medicine, we're so focused on, on such small amount or, or a list of, of things like, oh, you need to have this symptomatology to qualify for this mental illness. And if you have this, well, then, then we can go to that and choose these different medicines. But we need to have such a, a I guess, a wide escape of our mind and body. And I know that, you know, science is an incredibly powerful 
tool that's been so, so helpful in, in so, so many ways, but it's always a reductionist tool as well. You're always looking at a, a very fine cause and effect of a particular thing. And if you're looking at, you know, your organ health, so often we're just focused on that organ and instead of how it relates to our entire body as a whole. And, uh, and I'm hoping that, you know, with the, the progression and renaissance of psychedelics and, and psychotherapy, that we're able to approach medicine and mental health in, in a much better way. And like you were saying, it's often about disconnection and whether that's disconnection from meaningful work or disconnection from your peers or your family members. I think that there is there is quite a big not not a big gap, but I think all of the things that we've been learning in science need need to kind of form together to realize that there are similar approaches to seemingly different uh, symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I have been looking into the the cannabis space a little bit more, and I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. <laughs> I'm, uh, once again, I'm not sure whether or not um, these questions are going to be I will try my best, Tommy. <laughs> okay. okay. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I, I, based, I, I based all my questions about, I guess, uh, psychedelic therapy. And when you said that you're a family doctor and just exploring the spaces as much as I am, I was like, oh my goodness, I've got all of these questions that, that I was going to ask you, but yeah, yeah, I will. Let's, let's, I'm just going to unshade my family docs out here. I'm not just a family doctor. Like family docs are very important and they're writing 80% of the antidepressant prescriptions. So like if I were a practicing family doctor, it would still be very valid because I would know family health. I would know, you know, I would need to know just as much about depression, but I am very clear on what my, what my zone is within psychedelics. And it's not that I'm a specialist in anyone's research. I'm not a specialist in therapy. I'm a specialist in knowing what doctors do not know. And my, what drives me is that when these things become FDA approved, as they are going to be very soon, they're not going to get to patients if one of a few things don't happen. Number one, if the doctor doesn't know about it, we'll just say doctors generically, I'm covering clinicians and of, of all types, therapists, et cetera. But if a patient goes to their doctor and says, I am depressed, I'm feeling depressed. If the, if the doctor doesn't know about psychedelics, then even if that patient says, you know, I know uh, what do you think about psychedelics? The doctor may say like, oh, you want to take more drugs? You know, that sounds dangerous. No. So then the patient doesn't get the psychedelics, right? Scenario number two is where the patient goes to the doctor and the doctor knows about psychedelics, but the patient doesn't. So the patient's like, you want to give me that crazy drug? No, I'm not doing that. Uh, number three, if they go and the patient and, and doctor both know about psychedelics or, you know, one educates the other and they both agree that that's the way to go, but the psychedelic they agree on is totally illegal and the, you know, the patient can't travel or whatever, well, then the patient still doesn't get it. And obstacle number four is accessibility, right? Ketamine is available now. It is available. There's some ketamine clinic, you know, in most localities, doctors are learning about it. Patients are probably hearing about it. So they go to the doctor, they say, I'm depressed. The, the doctor's like, how about ketamine? Patient says, okay. They say it's available. Then they look at the bill because it is completely not affordable. Thousands of dollars often per ketamine uh, sequence of treatments. The patient's still not going to get the medicine if they can't afford it. So those are the four big hurdles that I see to making these medicines a reality for the patients that need them. And so my passion lies in there in figuring out you know, my, my primary place is that I started the Psychedelic Medicine Association to educate um, doctors and clinicians on the psychedelics so that that first conversation can happen 
in a way that, you know, it, maybe if the patient's never heard about psychedelics, but their doctor is the one coming to them and educating them and having that conversation, it's much more likely than if they, you know, hear some crazy story on the street, hopefully that they're going to trust that, that medical provider's opinion and they can start having that conversation. And then the Psychedelic Medicine Association also has over 70 member organizations. So you can either be a clinician and be in the PMA, or you can be a member organization that um, we have members like Theracil. We have members like MAPS. So these organizations are the ones filling in those other pieces. Okay, maybe they're like MAPS trying to get it FDA approved so that it's accessible. Maybe they're like Theracil that's trying to get it accessible via this Section 56 exemption. Because you know we can only have so many missions at the Psychedelic Medicine Association. So our mission is solely on the education, but we've had other people join. I like how you called it an ecosystem. I call it a sandbox, but I definitely, I'm gonna steal that from you. So you know, they come to in our ecosystem. And so those experts, since I, you know, I'm not a, any expert on any one si um, of these psychedelic sciences or therapy. So every month we have different experts from those organizations come on and hold a webinar for the members only to tell them, okay, this this week, this month we're going to dive into psilocybin. We had a month where four different people from MAPS came and just talked about MDMA for PTSD. And so that's kind of the, the area in which most of my passions lie and where you can ask me anything about that. <laughs> Sorry that I do not know the in and outs of psychedelic therapy, but you know, I spent nine years at the VA seeing people who could definitely have used it. And I know that if the people who are providing the medicines, who are, you know, treating patients don't know they exist, then it's not going to get to the patients. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Perfect. You've, you've summed that up wonderfully. Yeah. And I think that there is quite a gap in terms of the medical doctor's understanding. I mean, a medical doctor has, you know, 10 or 15 minutes with, with a patient and need to often diagnose things quite quickly. And doctors, whilst they know such a, a wide breadth of, of different treatments and, and options for the patient, there's always going to be new treatments and new options that they're, they're not aware of. And so what you're doing is, is, is amazing and being able to educate um, doctors and clinicians in, in helping to understand and pave the way forward so that these kind of medicines are one known for the doctors and within the, within that community. And, and then for the patient to also know about it, to, to see it as, as a viable treatment option. So that's amazing that, that you're doing that. And what are some of the things that uh, doctors or, or some of the questions that the doctors are asking about in, in terms of these types of treatments? So they want to know things like indications. Okay, which, which of the medicines, which of these therapies can I use for which indication? And again, because we're Western doctors, we're like, which for anxiety, which for depression? We use those, you know, kind of narrow indications, but that's what we have. You know, we are trying to bring these revolutionary medicines into the current model. Like the model may adapt and I hope it does. Um, but for now, like they're still using these indication names and to get something FDA approved, you generally have to have an indication for it, right? So like the MDMA that's about to be approved, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is for PTSD, right? They had to put an indication with it. Same thing with Spravato that was made FDA um, approved by Johnson & Johnson. It is for treatment resistant depression or at least its initial indication was. So they wanna know what indication, what medicine for what indication, where can they get this? Is it legal? And then there's this second layer of questions that whether or not the clinicians are asking it, I, they will be soon. Because right now, ketamine is the only one they can really refer to. And the questions can be, you know, how do we know the ketamine practitioner is good? Because let's be honest, we know that the uh, quality of ketamine clinics varies widely. There are some that are just, you know, you walk in, you talk to nobody, they put the needle in your arm, you lay there for 45 minutes, you leave. 
And then at the much better end of the, the program is you're getting integration. You've got a psychotherapist there doing ketamine assisted psychotherapy. You get, uh, sorry, you get preparation and integration afterwards. And so that's, that's part of, you know, how do we know who to refer to? But some of the questions that are, and, and then of course they, like I said before, they have those same questions about it. Is it addictive? Is it safe, et cetera. But a big issue that's coming is going to be, you know, how do we know which therapists are good when, you know, this, th there's not like a credentialing board at this point, right? There's, they, they may go get psychedelic assisted psychotherapy training from MAPS or CIS or somewhere else, but who, like, you know, when I, if I'm a physician, which I am, so like I have to have my board certification and they renew it and I have to do my continuing education and those kinds of things. Well, until those kinds of things are in place for both the therapist and for retreat centers and all of those things, then um, I think physicians are going to be reticent to, or just more hesitant on, on referring because they don't know what is going to be a, a safe place or person to refer to. And so that's something that needs to happen as we move this along. It's, it's building this awareness within, within that clinician community that's, that's so important because, I mean, even within the psychiatric community, there's still a lot of stigma and backlash that needs to be worked through. Um, there's certain... Uh, associations like psychiatric associations in, in Australia and around the world that are, that are strongly against the use of psychedelic assisted therapies, which is disheartening to see when, when you're looking at these, these FDA trials that are, that are progressing so well and, and the efficacy is, is clearly there. How do you approach the kind of the medical doctors that, that have this stigma towards psychedelics? The, the best thing that I can do, and it's unfortunate, I mean, we know and now on like a worldwide scale what it's like to talk to people who do not believe in science, right? This is, you know, it's getting harder by the day to just say, look, science says, uh, but when you go to a clinician who's in theory supposed to first do no harm and is supposed to have the patient's best interest and you show them the data and then combine, I mean, there's different ways that you can make the point. If they're data-driven, great, show them the data. But if they have any semblance of a functional heart, sorry, there's some noise outside, but hopefully that you can combine that data with some anecdotes. Now, doctors are really big on like, the plural of anecdote is not data. Like anecdotal evidence is not the end all be all, obviously, but I think it's a nice like icing to the research cake. Cause if you can say like, yes, um, ayahuasca helps with depression. And then you have some vets who've gone and done ayahuasca through heroic hearts or something like that. And they can talk about the life-changing experience that they had then I think that puts kind of like some face to the data instead of just numbers, um, faceless numbers. And then maybe if that doctor does not have a heart nor care about science, then you can go to the cost savings, right? Like MAPS put out that um, paper about MDMA therapy being very cost effective. And it is, I mean, yes, it's eight hours of therapy two or three times, but otherwise that person might have an hour of therapy every 52 weeks a year for the rest of their life. And perhaps expensive antidepressant prescriptions, right? So like the cost savings is there. So like what, you know, hopefully in one of those angles, and you, we know that there are people who are going to be stuck in their stigma ways forever. And regardless of what category we're trying to discuss, but um, because like at the, we were running the sauna symposium, which is coming up soon. And in my talk, I referenced this study that the, um, I think it's called behavioral psych, there's, I'm going to botch the name of who ran the study, but somebody ran a study on 2,700 uh, mental health clinicians and 13% said they did not want to hear about psychedelic therapy. 
So essentially it's like, wow, you know, over a 10th of practicing doctors do not want to hear about better options for their patients or even just a different option for their patients, right? So there's, you know, there are some people we are not going to get past, but what my, uh, you know, um, my dream vision is, is that it's someday it's malpractice to not tell the patient about this option. Because imagine if somebody comes to you for de with depression and the patient and the doctor says, nothing we can do for depression, don't have any medicines for that. Well, we can give you some therapy, but there's no medicines for depression. And that patient ends up doing themselves harm. And then somebody looks into it and they say, hold it, hold it. The patient came to you with depression and you did not mention antidepressants. That's malpractice. I want to live in a world where if they don't mention psychedelics, it's also malpractice. Yeah, I think that we definitely should be living in, in that, that world because, you know, looking at these, these trials that are, that are happening and, and more and more trials are, are coming, um, which is amazing to see. But from the statistics that, that I've come across, it's anywhere between, you know, 60 to 80 percent are, are actually reaching some kind of remission and, and you compare that to, to antidepressants, which were originally thought to be this, this big breakthrough. And in some ways it, it was quite a, quite a breakthrough because it does help many people. It helps, you know, about a third of patients, which is, which is amazing. And we, that, that is certainly an option to give, but when we're looking at psychedelic therapy and, and with patients going into remission from only two to three medicinal doses, it's, it's impossible to ignore that talk about remission, like when had we talked about a cure for mental health, anything, right? We have been chasing symptoms since the beginning of time. Now, the, like you said, these bring the possibility of cures. And so that's why I think it's such malpractice because essentially if you're just saying, oh, you're depressed, here's a way to, to chase the symptoms for the rest of your life. It may dull your ability to love. It may bring you some sexual side effects. There could be some weight gain, um, but but go ahead and try one of these without saying, oh, by the way, there's a cure. That's why I think it's such a, you know, like it's going to be rife for malpractice when there is a cure available, a possible, like a, an actual chance at a cure to not discuss that with patients. Yeah, no, absolutely. Sometimes even, even the patient may come with, you know, as we were discussing earlier, a bit of fear and stigma behind approaching these types of medicines. And, and as some medicines are beginning to, to enter that, that uh, medical framework and, and be an option. There's still the, the patient that almost needs to accept that as, as a viable treatment option as well. So there's, there's a gap in ensuring that we are educating everyone about this. And it almost, it's, there's companies and, and non-for-profit organizations that are, that are coming up all the time in this space. And I think that it's incredible, but we also, again, need to be stringent in our approach that we're not going too quickly you know sometimes it's we need to get this so quickly because there are so so many people who, who are suffering around the world but not too quickly because we don't want it to just kind of dump it in into the the medical culture and just hope for the best so how can we navigate that side of things how do we ensure that we're not going so quickly as to just being so incredibly hopeful and and positive towards these types of therapy and treatment options, but also slowing down and, and make sure that we're doing them properly. Yeah, I think uh, for better or for worse, this FDA process that we have to go through is keeping us at that pace, right? If everything was just already legal, we could, hey, it's, it's available, and then people just go for it. And we're actually even seeing that with ketamine because it is legal and people have much more access to it. And then there are people who are getting addicted to ketamine and having side effects from ketamine and there have been deaths. And, and you're absolutely right that it comes down to 
trying to get across that these have to be used intentionally, consciously. And also, we need to keep that eye toward harm reduction. Because as these, you know, say psilocybin rolls out in this medical model. Now, luckily in the medical model, you have to take it on site there. So that's a harm reduction built in. There are therapists there. Harm reduction built in all over the place. That's a great example. Uh, ketamine, now that, you know, they have this thing where you can send them lozenges to home and we're doing home therapy and this kind of thing. Well, that can really open up to a decrease in harm reduction because you don't necessarily have to have a person there. You're not on site. Like, it, you can use these things much more recreationally. And again, we have access to all these things recreationally on the black market, not pretending that we don't. But if you are considering using one of these substances outside of a therapeutic context, please keep harm reduction in mind because any you know, massive catastrophe with this is going to set them, it has the potential of setting the movement back. And so that's what, you know, harm reduction is huge. And then I think as we move through it, the more that we can put that emphasis on doing it intentionally, but it, you know, there's, there's this um, talk about, like, I think Rick Doblin always says he hates the use of the word recreationally as if it's something like, uh, you know, like a, a lesser way to do it. And I totally agree. Like the first time that I had that therapeutic realization was at Burning Man. I was, I was definitely using it recreationally and still had a benefit and you, you know, the, the benefit is still possible. So I don't think there's anything wrong with recreational use as long as there is still an eye toward harm reduction. And so I think it's just, it all boils down to education on every aspect, right? We educate the doctors about it. Great. They'll feel comfortable giving it to patients. We educate the patients about it. Like right now, if you've got a patient who's on home ketamine, hey, use this as directed during your ketamine sessions. Please do not be using this, you know, taking it day after day after day in an unsafe manner. Educating them on what the risks and benefits are of it, frankly, like that has, you know, some people don't know that ketamine can be addictive. And so I, I think it's just, we're doing what we can to keep an eye toward harm reduction and education, hopefully. And, and like I said, with the fact that most of these aren't legal, that the, the process of getting things out is already going to be slowed down enough. But um, if we keep the, the principles of, of education and harm reduction in mind, hopefully it rolls forward more safely and smoothly. Yeah, certainly. And anytime there is those stories in relation to someone consuming it recreationally and then something goes wrong, newspapers and, and media are so quick to jump on and just it's the main headline of bang you know psychedelic uh drug causes harm to man or i don't know something like that yeah. and then again it's, it's pushed back further and further and further and that's really frustrating to see when you know it is obviously an anecdote of one and yes sometimes things can go wrong that is true that's true for all types of drugs all types of substances but you know, drugs are tools and we need to approach them as tools. You have tools in the tool shed, you have a hammer that's used for a particular purpose. Now, if you turn the hammer and start hammering your head, then of course things can go wrong. So each have their own way of, of being used and they need to be used in those, in those certain ways. And if there are risks that are associated with misuse, then we, we all need to be informed. And certainly through my secondary uh, school and, and through university, you know, drug education wasn't much of a thing. You kind of think you talk about alcohol a little bit and, and maybe a little bit about coffee or, or, or I don't know, some, some kind of things, but we weren't really educated on, on any of these drugs and considering it's such a big part of culture, whether it's legal or illegal, we have, we need to accept that people are still using these regardless. And, for it to be 
unregulated and, you know, people don't even necessarily know what they're getting. And so it's hard for harm reduction to happen, especially in, in a quote unquote recreational setting. And so what do you envision that side of things to be? How, how can we reduce the amount of harm in recreational settings? Do you think a, a regulated and, and um, legal form can be appropriate so that people can ensure that they're getting is, is safe and, and non-toxic and, and not something else? What, what do you envision there? Well, if that were the case, then like we already have ketamine that's legal, right? And like I just said, that's the one that's currently, I mean, it's the most dangerous one that they're abusing of the ones that we're generally discussing, like ketamine, psilocybin, MDMA, right? Um, so just having it be legal doesn't necessarily solve the problem of proper use. It, it, yet it may help with the problem of um, like adulteration. For example, most people taking ecstasy off the street, how much of that is actually MDMA? Same thing, though, with like powdered ketamine, uh, you know, we're seeing cocaine deaths that because there's being it's being cut with fentanyl. And so a part of the drug, the harm reduction that so many people skip is the drug testing portion. And so we need to improve our communications on drug testing. So, yeah, but I'm, I'm envisioning this future where once MDMA assisted psychotherapy is available, that's not going to be like you go to target i don't know what the pharmacy is called in australia you don't go to the pharmacy and get your mdma the provider gets the mdma so it's not like they're going to be generally using prescription drugs off label as you can with the opioids right you somebody hands you 60 opioids because you had surgery right then you can go home and do whatever you want with it it's not necessarily probably i mean again like this has not happened yet but in my vision probably not going to be like that um, so I, I think it's important to stress the fact that most of the dangers of these drugs are when the drug is not the drug you think you're taking. The other dangers are set and setting. And so if we could push, you know, drug testing more or, you know, even just because like there, for example, MDMA, when used recreationally could be great, does have some, you know, kind of like serotonin hangover effects. And some people may not be aware of that. And so just educate people on like the full spectrum of anything, right? Like if, if, if I'm growing up and I ask my parent, like, what's in that coffee you're drinking? And it's caffeine. It can make you feel really awake, but it can also make it to where you can't fall asleep at night. And you might have to go to the bathroom a lot because it, it's a diuretic. And, you know, if we just are, are open and honest about pros and cons, I think that's what prohibition does and stigma does is it makes it so that we never discuss these medicines at all, much less the pros and the cons, right? And so then once we're trying to get out of prohibition, we just talk a lot about the pros. We don't want to talk about the cons. I'm very guilty of that as well. Like, let's look at the shiny part of this, right? Because we don't want anybody focusing on the cons. But I think if we don't focus on them, if we don't, you know, I finally put out an episode of the plant medicine podcast called The Dark Side of Ketamine with Dr. Mark Bronstein. And he was talking about the addictive properties, the side effects, the, the deaths that have happened, because that's, that's what's the possibility. If we don't talk about the, the dark side, people will end up on the dark side without meaning to. And so, I mean, that's the best I can hope for is that kind of well-rounded education. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I do feel that a lot of people in the, the psychedelic space, obviously, because it's so emerging, we're, we're so excited of the positive benefits of it. And of course, there are incredible positive benefits of it. But often we're kind of biased towards just discussing the positive benefits because I guess the public still seems so well equipped with what the negative side of things are because that's what we drilled into them 
during you know the 60s and 70s and and all the way through today is that all of the the harmful side of psychedelics is so well known so sometimes it's hard for us as as the educators or translating that message to to discuss that because it's almost like well well they know that maybe a challenging trip could come but i think yeah it does all, all come back to education doesn't it yeah and it's funny because you said like I think challenging trip is one of the only things that they know is a possibility that is an actual possibility, because I think so many of the other things are, you know, like, like you said, one bad outcome gets so blown up, right? Every, you know, anybody who's looked back into prohibition has probably heard the story of somebody was given LSD and then they jumped out of the window, right? Everybody knows that story, right? So if you think that that's what happens when you take LSD, you're way off, right? Like anybody could jump out of a window on any substance at any time if given the right mindset, right? It is not like some property of LSD makes you suicidal. Um, So a lot of things that people have heard in the past are actually uh, incorrect. And so, you know, yeah, they may, it, it takes not only showing them the good side, but showing them like, hey, the things that you do know are wrong. There are some side effects. It's just not the things that you may have heard in kind of like the fear mongering of the 70s and 80s and 90s and such. Yeah, certainly. Now, we are coming to to an end of this episode. So is there anything else that you would like to add? And and if people are wanting to, to reach out to you or, or want to follow some of the work that you're doing, um, where can you direct them? Absolutely. And thank you for that. Um, The Plant Medicine Podcast is a great place if you're just looking for information. We're coming up on almost 100 episodes and we cover it from a very medical lens, or at least we had until recently. We, you know, at some point in time, you're going to run out of studies to cover. And so we've covered some things about the psychedelics and meditation, psychedelics and breathwork, psychedelics in certain communities. But uh, as you alluded to before, the first 60 episodes are like a choose your own adventure and we go Uh, psychedelic by psychedelic and we have a patient experience we have scientific research we have a practitioner episode to talk about the methods they use when they're administering administering the medicine and then we have a history legality episode so whatever angle you're curious about for like i think we covered 12 psychedelics then you can head over there if you are a clinician if you are a healthcare clinician or you have an organization mind medicine australia is one of our members um head on over and check out the Psychedelic Medicine Association, which is at psychedelicmedicineassociation.org. We would love to have you join us. Um, Every month we send the five or six latest articles in psychedelic science. But in addition to that, the most fun is that we have these members only meetings once a month and we have these incredible experts on. And the conversation at the end of these, you know, usually you open up for Q&A, there may be like a few questions. These questions are intense. These are like very clinically driven questions, really forward thinking by the doctors and the therapists that we've got in there. And so if you want to hear, you know, every month, the, you know, nitty gritty about these different, like our next one at the end of um, August is the pharmacology of psychedelics. We've got two psychedelic pharmacists on to talk about tolerance and addiction potential and all these things, you know, join us. We're going to have those and and many more fun things coming up uh, over the years. But if you're looking to learn more that that's a great place to start and we'd love to have you join us. Amazing. Lemurie, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your day. It's, it's been a delight to, to talk to you. You're such a positive energy and I can, I can feel that coming through <laughs> across the world. And, and I appreciate that. And, and I look forward to the collaborations that we have between Mind Medicine Australia and, and, and all the work that, that you do. So once again, thank you and, and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Tommy. You as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for your interest and enthusiasm in mental health and psychedelic therapy. 
I will remind you that there are a number of ways that you can support our mission, all of which can be found in the show notes. And make sure you leave a five-star rating. This, this really, really helps. And I will remind you that the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening and I'll see you here for the next one.